Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jodie Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Amy Babish, and we are going to be talking about healing from trauma from a psycho-spiritual and movement therapy lens. Amy weaves her passion for soul connection and extensive training in expressive arts therapy trauma and attachment work, somatic psychotherapy, mind-body work, developmental psychology, lineage and intergenerational work, embodied gestalt sex therapy, breath work, movement and creative expression for over 20 years in her offerings for groups and individuals with a touch of magic, lifestyle curation and je ne sais quoi. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Jody. And and I would like to also pay respect and honor the people that my land is on that where my office and I live which is in Washington DC uh, on the, the tribes of the Piscataway uh-huh. so the Piscataway Native Americans who are listening I acknowledge your people too so I'm so excited to speak with you in person we just had a, a brief sort of um, check-in then and we've been colleagues online for many years now and it's just so lovely to hear your voice and see you in real time <laughs> it's pretty incredible you know my heart just is so filled with knowing you virtually for all these years and it's just I'm very humbled been touched to be a guest with you and your community. Yeah, and look, I think the women, t- I know already they're going to get so much out of everything you have to offer. But um, so would you share with people and our audience a little bit about yourself, your wounded healer history, if appropriate for you to share, and what led you to becoming a psychotherapist? Yeah, I took a lot of time discerning this invitation with you. And I have never shared parts of what I'm going to share with your community, but I've done a lot of personal work on it, but it feels appropriate. I'm um, just with the vulnerability and the honesty and the, and the integrity that you share. Mm. And that I guess we'll share that I'm also going to share in that vein. And my decision for that is because when people hear me now, they don't know my come from place. And mm. I think the invitation to answer this question is so important because a lot of story can be created by what I look like or my background and all of the anti-racism work in America that's happening from a somatic psychotherapy place. The first place we start with, which is kind of guided from a book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Rishma Menakam. The author asks people dealing with their privilege to say, tell me about your parents' trauma and tell me about your grandparents' trauma and tell me how your family came to America. And I'm going to speak about my story based on who I come from. I have a lot of intergenerational trauma in my story. And I can say that every single person in my family did the best that they could. And I come by this work very honestly. And I come by this work based on really being the person to um, have humility around the suffering and the sacrifices of my ancestors. Mm. And there is addiction in my family. One of my grandmothers had dissociative identity disorder. There's suicide on both sides of my family. And 
there's a lot of personality disorders and a lot of mm. struggles with um, food as love and food um, and body image struggles with disordered eating and also relational traumas and sexual abuse traumas. And one of my grandfathers was one of 17 and he came from what I thought was hungry for a long time, but then with Ancestry.com, I now found that he came from Russia and he, all of those siblings were raised by 17 different families. Oh, um, wow, and so w- when you sit with you know, how my, most of my grandparents were first generation immigrants. Mm. And, you know, my parents had me very young. They did the very best they could. And I can't imagine what it was like to be a parent at that mm. time. And my trauma, I was molested growing up. And I also was physically abused and emotionally abused. And that led to one of my coping skills was having an eating disorder to cope with places where people couldn't really acknowledge what was happening. It was my sense of control. So I was anorexic uh, from age 13 to about age 33. And it really moved from anorexia to orthorexia. And I didn't, there weren't words for orthorexia. I'm 42. (laughs) There weren't words for that growing up. Um, Yeah, it's a relatively new diagnosis, isn't it? But I mean, as we know, it's been quite a, a big part of anorexia, certainly anorexia for a very long time. And the other way I coped was from a very young age, I didn't know what it was called, but now I can use the words that I probably was suicidal from age nine until age 33. When I say to people that I come by this work really honestly, and that I'm a wounded healer that walks her talk and does this place from, offers this work from a place of humility, I feel like this is the place to begin to name that out loud. And I think there's a lot of confusion about therapist and healing and therapy and healers. And I want to dismantle some of the confusion around that. Thank you so much for bringing your vulnerability and honesty and congruence. And this audience is for women still suffering. And I, I just know that that is going to really speak to them. So thank you. Yeah, I, w- I want to be able to say like, I get it. It's not easy. And it's one step and one day at a time. Obviously, things are really tough. We're recording this in October. It's going to be a few months before it goes live, but things are pretty sort of tough over there at the moment. So obviously, you work as a psychotherapist, and we're going to get into this some more, but you know, I know in our interaction prior to speaking today that you've, um, you've just let go of your beautiful office. Then I remember we did a blog post together many years ago about psychotherapy offices. So what's happening? Have you decided to, I mean, obviously, you're not seeing people in person at the moment or what's sort of going on, I guess? So I'm based in Washington, D.C. and we've been in shelter in place since March. So it's been seven months. I have been on a path of really looking at my privilege as a white woman and a white therapist for a long time. But I think everybody's gotten some deep medicine and deep healing and deep places for reflection from whatever your experience of COVID and shelter in places, no matter where you are in the world. Um, But one of the things that I have really reckoned with is the weight of my privilege and how I, as a white therapist who's benefited from being a white therapist, what can I do differently? So I have two offices and they were, as Jody said, like featured in one of her beautiful articles and they were really lovely. And I also had a sand tray collection of probably 500 miniatures. And when I sat with the fact that they were not being used for seven months, it was very evident to me that that wasn't right for me to keep them anymore. Mm. And I have a dear friend and colleague who's a black therapist. Her name is Xanthia Johnson. And I felt like this was one way that I could do the right thing or take a step that really 
as something very concrete around my privilege. So I gave her all the furniture and all the miniatures as a step for my anti-racism work. One of her wishes is to open uh, a healing and therapy center for Black families and Black folk, and uh, also for Black therapists and people of color. So I know that all the furniture and all the miniatures will be really paid for it in a way that mm. I could never be able to do as a white woman and that Xanthia never got these opportunities. So that was one of the things that came out of this discernment period for me. And we haven't even hit the second wave in Washington. So many more places to go. And yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, we're going to talk about your movement classes towards the end. So I will make sure we do too is um, because I noticed on your website that you've got a donation fee for those and they're online and that you are donating to your dear colleagues. So I'll make sure that in the show notes, we have the link for that uh, going forward. So thank you. You write on your website that you work with therapy and retreats from a psycho-spiritual lens, just so that our, I'm a psycho-spiritual psychotherapist as well, but just so that our listeners have a have an understanding of, of what that is. Would you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so for me, psycho-spiritualism, um, psycho-spiritual therapy is is outside of religion. So sometimes I see people who are religious and sometimes I see people who are even atheists. So it's outside of what most of us are exposed to around spirituality, I would say. It's the place of really knowing that there must be something more to life than just the body and the thoughts and the experiences and the things that we have. And that place of knowing for me is spirit or soul or some might call it the true self or the wise woman or the essential self. So there's many names for that. And so that place at the intersection of psyche where psyche can't be in charge of the soul, but we need it. We need its uh, its allyship or its support. Mm. So eco spiritual work is letting, um, letting the soul's infinite wisdom really guide someone and teaching them how to remember how to do that while respecting that your thinking mind or your ego or your psyche gets to contribute. But the soul is really, that's the soul's role in this life that people came to live. Yeah. And I'm thinking, uh, I mean, some I've, I interviewed Carolyn Coston earlier on and she calls it soul self. That's another name. And what else do we call it? Yeah, the essential self. So there's lots of different names for that. And I think if we go back to episode three, she also gives a very good explanation between ego and soul as well. And I think, you know, that's what we're obviously talking about here again too, that we, we need the ego and our identifications, but we also need to remember that we that deeper self to tap into and I, I also know that on your website you've, you've written that you guide women and to bring them back into their bodies to be able to shift what is possible for them and that the women you work with have tried and read everything they yet they continue to have the same fears and reenact the same behaviors which keep them stuck and disconnected from their lives and you've said that you clear trauma blocks and the epigenetic patterns would you help people understand what that is so first i guess look at let's look at trauma blocks yeah 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 we'll break it down the way that i talk with this about people who might not know what this kind of work is you know we're all familiar with catch 22 thinking Mm-hmm. which is, I know myself, I know the problem, and I even maybe know some steps, 
but I never get past, if you see it as a cycle, I always drop off the cycle and I always go back to point zero. So I'm kind of repeating those first three parts again and again and again. Mm. And so sometimes some people experience trauma blocks with thoughts or perseverative um, fears or projections or the stories that we tell about people, whereas other people, um, they experience it in the body. So they might, um, you know, feel really stuck mm. or they might feel what people call anxiety or overwhelm where they might um, really just be expressing people pleasing or codependence mm-hmm. um, or they have like a really strong sense of betrayal where they can't trust themselves or trust anybody. Um, and another one would be kind of very, what we call rigid, um, a rigid experience, which is like, as long as I can know what the good side is and the bad side is, bad side is or the right and wrong side is I'm okay Mm -hmm. so there's no kind of authentic self so those are some flavors of what trauma blocks look like Um, Mm -hmm. and there's always a component in the body and most people are really disconnected from their bodies Um, but trauma really you know lives in the body and it's sometimes expressed in thoughts and helping people to know that the kind of the catch-22 thinking is never going to get at what's stuck in the body so yeah. the thoughts are the way in, the stories are the way in. That's kind of the best way that I can describe the nature and the um, amorphousness of mm. trauma. Mm-hmm. When you talk about uh, epigenetic patterns, I haven't really heard that term before, actually. So yeah, yeah. So epigenetics, you know, you hear a lot about it and integrative medicine or um, functional medicine. Those are the words we use in the States around it uh-huh. in, terms of med- of, in terms of medical health, but it also applies to our mental health and our psycho-spiritual health. And the way that I demonstrate that and kind of give very concrete, we're going to kind of talk through the continuum, but I'm going to give something that's very clear and then we'll kind of get into the nuances. So a clear evidence of epigenetic uh, impact on people is when you've had like a really horrific trauma and in, in the States, I name the middle passage or slavery mm-hmm. and also the annihilation of native Americans or Holocaust survivors coming to America. You may not even know how your people got here, but the trauma and the impact of being brought here out of necessity or being forced to come here that lives in the body. And so, and that comes out in the psyche. And so that will look like, I don't want to go to sleep at night. I feel like I'm going to be taken or mm, I feel like I have to hide in the basement or I don't want to go on a plane or a boat. And mm. these are what we might call irrational fears, but they're very related to our DNA on a cellular level holding unresolved trauma. And um, I'm sure in Australia, the, the impact of what's happened to Aboriginal people, I'm sure that's, that's also another place. I don't, I'm not... A, yeah, absolutely. Colonization, we, we call it yes. here. Absolutely. And I want to give like another another more kind of like continuum of this. So they're all just like with trauma, there are known traumas and there's more subjective or idiosyncratic traumas. And it's the same with the nuances of epigenetic and intergenerational trauma. So mm. what, what you sometimes see is kind of patterns from firstborn to on the mother's side or father-son or father-daughter or you'll see kind of different patterns that show up like 
the firstborn can't have a baby, but all the other siblings can have babies, or mm. there's no trust of a certain gender, or there's a lot of secrecy. And it may never, ever have been talked about like great grandma or great, 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 great had to do this out of necessity, but then it, it was not fully integrated into the family system or the family psyche. And then it keeps showing up because there's shame yeah, and there's trauma held around it. And so it, it is literally living in the DNA and it becomes expressed when something similar in the mix to be played out again in this generation. So wondering how you begin to work with these patterns with the women that you're working with you know i'm a big i know there's all different kinds of people that she'll interview so i'm not here to say anything about anyone anyone else's way, way of working but the way that i work is you don't actually have to know i don't ever expect someone to remember anything or i work with a lot of people who are adopted and they don't know yeah. their biological family story and so we don't have to know any of that so that takes a lot of pressure off of the system and so we start to just we just start to look at the patterns that continue to show up that don't quite make sense and that feel really stuck and inexplainable and also that are really what I would call charged with emotion. Mm. So this has like an overreaction to something that if we took 10 or 100 people, most people would be like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. So I start to look at with them and be curious around, let's really sit and feel into what this might be about. And Miyuki Yamamoto my co-facilitator for the retreats, she is trained in a practice I'm called Family Constellations. Oh, yes. And so that is a really powerful way to work this through. And we do that on retreats with people. And when I work individually with people, we can use objects and do object constellations, but we also can use movement and sound because a lot of it is in the pre-verbal because it's passed down not by story and not by memory, but it's, it lives in the body. So we'll get into really kind of experimenting in all kinds of ways and the body will will really resonate when we've hit on something yeah and then the person will experience a lot of relief and so even without any knowledge of what that pattern being passed down might be or any concreteness of it we can start to work it through and, and then it will integrate into the psyche and the body yeah i just want to come back to the constellation so it might be useful for our listeners to maybe maybe we could just dive a little bit deeper into that i have actually done a constellation weekend so i i have had first hand experience of that but um would you just share with the women listening you know, just briefly what that actually might look like would you say more about constellations so that people understand what that is yes of course of course you know i would say that constellations they were quote unquote, discovered and really shared by uh, Bert Helliger. Mm-hmm. And what I know now about so many practices, I'm sure that this was deeply a part of many indigenous cultures. And I'm sure that this was done in many different places under many different names and communities and tribes and villages and the word that we use for it. And this time is family constellations. And so it's a process of using a representative to kind of show you physically what it looks like right now in your psyche. So instead of using artwork, I'm an art therapist by training and Mm -hmm. drawing out, we can either use objects or people that represent what's in your psyche. And so the most simple family constellation that you can do is like yourself and something else. So we've done yourself and money or yourself and anger or yourself and food. And so there's another, if we do it with a person, we've even done it where you represent yourself and then another person is going to represent food. 
So all of the stories that I carry about my past hurt, my past confusion, the things I don't understand, the things I don't know, the things I want, my longings, all of that is tied up in my body, in my psyche, in my field, in my energetic field around food. And so you place your hands on that person. And this, this part is, needs to be facilitated with someone who does it. And so then that person becomes the representative in your psyche for food. And so you start to say, well, I don't want to be close to you. I don't like you. Like, I don't trust you. <laughs> and then food will say, I don't understand why she's so upset with me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I kind of like her. And then I'll say, I don't want to hear that. Like, all my stuff will start to come out. And then food will say something like, I feel like you're really confused about who I really am. And food then can speak for itself. And then it starts to shift. It will show where you're entrenched in your psyche. And then it will start to shift into, oh, well, maybe it's not what I thought. And food will start to say, I'm just food. Like, I'm not good or bad. I'm just here to nourish you. Mm. And I'm just here to be your ally. And can we have a, a heart to heart? And so you can be what we call in right relationship with a person, a thing, a feeling, and it's really incredible. Another way that you can do it with objects is another way we've done it is like around your business. So you might have an object that represents yourself, an object that represents the business you want, the people you, another one for the people you want to serve, and then your resources. Mm. And you would set it up and it kind of what it feels like in your body. And then the process probably needs most likely to be facilitated by somebody, but okay. you get to use something very concrete to see, oh, wow, this isn't, sometimes it shows up like, oh, that's the business I thought I wanted, but I actually, my people that I want to serve want this business, or I need this resource, or I need boundaries to have the business that I want to serve these people. So something else will come out that is not in the current, it's not accessible by your psyche at this point. So the constellation kind of shows you what's already here, but hidden from what you currently see in in your life or in your mm. business. So, I mean, we were going to talk about retreats later, but seeing as you've brought that in, we <laughs> might just... Um, so what's happening at the moment? I remember seeing your retreats a few years ago because you were running one in New Zealand, weren't you? That was my intention, but we never got to run it. So oh, you one, never got to... One yeah. day. One okay. Day. Well, I was sitting with a lot of regret about that, so now I can let that go. <laughs> because you were so close. I mean, obviously at the moment, you're not able to run the retreats, but um, that's still on the agenda for when things calm down. Yeah. So, I mean, we were doing what, what Yuki would call one-off retreats for a long time. So like you come together for seven days, we're, you know, you're a part of our larger community, but it was just really like for years, we just did one-time retreats and we had a lot of people who repeated, like mm-hmm. they came on every week. And then having the people who put the longing for more deep work with us, we didn't have anything more than a one-week retreat. So Yuki offers what we call a three-year program in Japan. And she's mm-hmm. been offering those for 15 years. And so we have a three-year program now that we, we've, we're in one and a half years of three years together with my community in Washington. And we have some people in other parts of the country. But retreats were a part of that three-year program. But since we're not, we've modified the program and with the hopes of eventually doing retreats with that group again, but it's a bigger container to do deeper work mm-hmm. and we're modifying it with COVID. And for, you know, in this interim time, my hope is to offer a one-year virtual program that's a smaller container uh, of 12 people and that I can offer things that I might offer in a retreat in a virtual way because I don't know when we'll be back in person in Washington and I don't know when we'll be able to travel safely. And 
I know that this work is needed. The need for healthy, safe and places to practice how to be yourself and how to be received with dignity and respect is needed more than ever during oh, this absolutely. time of this complex time. And so that's one of the things that I've been sitting with during my my seven months of discernment. Yeah. yeah. So there was a statement on your website that I was intrigued about, and it was uh, you wrote about the lone wolf in us. And I mean, we're slightly moving sort of sideways, I guess. But um, would you say more about that? what that is? You, you say, every woman I know sees and realises that she plays small. And this is the part of the lone wolf in us. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. So I... I'm sure that you are too. I'm a huge fan of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, mm-hmm. archetypal psychologist, Jungian psychologist, who wrote Women Who Run with the Wolves, and really understanding the wolf pack and the wolf that is both at the front of the pack and the back of the pack. And the kind of people that are attracted to my work and the most every woman that I know has that lone wolf that either believes it's her, that she has to do it alone. And she doesn't belong in the pack. The pack's not safe or her role in the pack is to be out alone or she doesn't trust the pack and it's her way of protecting herself by being alone. She doesn't want to actually be out there, but she doesn't think that it's for everybody else, but not for her. And I kind of see those two opposite ends of the pendulum and there's different flavors of that. I don't even want to be here, but the only choice I have to be here that's safe is to be the lone wolf. And then the other one is, I have to be the lone wolf because that's the only way that people will love me is if I take care of them. Mm. And the other one is I just have to endure it because I don't know how to say no. And then another flavor of it is I do it better than everybody else. So I should do it. And then the last one is, well, there's a right way and the wrong way. And the right way is to be the lone wolf. And so those different flavors, I think every woman can identify with probably even a combination of those flavors of lone wolf. and what we really realize is that that's not our authentic self. There's no part of the lone wolf that is authentic. It's a defense. It's a protector. Yeah. I was just thinking it's a response to trauma, isn't it? Yes. It it totally is a trauma response. And I think especially as women, the hyper-functioning, the over-functioning or the under-functioning as a lone wolf, it's very like potent and, and it's symbolism in the psyche. And no matter you know where you are, everyone wolf really resonates in a really potent way, and a wolf that's alone versus with the pack also has a lot of potency with the sacrifice and the suffering that it's going through mm. in that role. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about some of the tools and techniques that you use in terms of constellations and movement, but I also read on your website that, and this is a very psycho spiritual lens. I think I'm able to see endless possibilities for the women I work with and the concrete steps they need to make into a reality. So what, what are the steps towards healing from these concerns that we've been talking about? So one of the ways, the primary ways that I work is from a somatic and, you know, body energy perspective. So life force. Do I feel alive? And most of us, we think we know what alive is, but then we check all the boxes. That's not, we don't feel alive. Mm. Or do I have meaning, depth, or fulfillment in my life? That's another facet of aliveness. And so when we start to look, you know, feel into that, one of the main ways that I work with people is through a somatic and energy perspective called resourcing. So resourcing is different than empty your mind meditation and it's different than just putting our our roots our energetic roots in the ground it's really receiving life force from the heart of the world 
and learning how to allow, which is quite different than doing or being. And most women that I know struggle with safely receiving. And so it's a way to understand from a felt sense place, not from like, you don't have to be able to see anything, but from a felt sense place, how to practice receiving in a safe way and being filled up by life itself. And one of the things I wanted to offer to support your podcast and your community is anybody who leaves a review for your podcast, I would be happy to share a 10-minute meditation I have around this. And they can just screenshot the review and email me the review and, you know, that this is them. And I'm happy to give that as a free gift. And it's 10 minutes. And I recommend that people do it in the morning and at night. And you can fall asleep to it. So it's really, you lay down to it. It's very easy. Oh, that's very Um, generous. I'm sure women would love that. So I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So that's teaching people how to be resourced from life itself is one way. And then really teaching people how to literally communicate with their body, their Mm -hmm. organs, as if it was a girlfriend or someone they trust. So having a conversation with their, I had a conversation with somebody with their upper GI and their lower GI and their throat. Mm-hmm. And so each of those as a distinct conversation within a, a distinct part of, of them, that's like a friend, the three friends and understanding when the body is out of alignment, that the body's always trying to bring itself back into wholeness. It's not mm-hmm. punishing us. It's not doing anything other than saying, I don't know how to reach you other than being out of balance. Yes, so that the out of balance is is calling for something for us to awaken to something more than, yeah, more than more than rather than seeing like why do I always get sick or why do I always lose my voice or why do I always feel sick in my stomach or why can't I sleep at night? It's like your body's trying to say, hey, something's out of balance, mm, and yeah. I want you to rest more or I want you to get outside more, and you won't do this unless work is off the table or, or unless you're laying down or unless you know, you have all this time that you can't be at the office. And even for some people, it's not their bodies. It's other things like I can't access my computer because mm-hmm. my computer shut down for five days. I'm like, <laughs> you know, you're being guided to not use your computer. Could you take advantage of that versus I'm going to be so angry and frustrated and worried that I can't use this thing that I don't even want to be doing in the first place. It's like learning to see the gifts that we're being given, even though it seems like an inconvenience or a shitty shitty crappy thing it's recognizing like sometimes we're trying to be reached in a way that doesn't make logical or rational sense and you kind of reminded me right now of coronavirus yes (laughs) if we think about the call you know obviously there's a lot of suffering and it's very painful but if we think about what the call is I mean you've already started to talk about that in terms of your own shelter in place and the process that you've been going through for the last seven months so I think there's going to be a lot of that going on at the moment. I also work with people who are medical professionals on Mm -hmm. ICU units with COVID. And so really having that much contact with incomprehensible death Mm -hmm. and being the only person that's holding someone's hand when they're dying because their Mm -hmm. family can't be there. Like it just makes, it really puts things into perspective in a way that at least in America between anti-racism movement and our economy and our politics and now, Mm -hmm. you know, COVID we can't keep living like this and we can't keep hating each other. And we can't, you know, so it's, do you want to live with regret and make things get worse and contribute Mm -hmm. to things Mm -hmm. getting worse? Or are you going to do your part to mid-course correct and realign with your true self? That's all we can do. Yeah. And so when we think about other steps women might take to become more aligned with their true self, anything else to add to that? 
one of the ways that inviting women to have a practice um, with connecting to something bigger than themselves. And when I facilitate my movement classes, I'm very, I use a lot of humor to make it accessible because I'm not a dancer and I'm really awkward. And I was called, I was literally called to do this by my spiritual guidance team to bring people together in Washington. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I talk about connecting with something bigger than yourself, I, I say for some of us, it might be chocolate. For some of us, it might be our beloved pet. Um, for some of us, it might be nature. And for some of us, it might be spirit or the infinite intelligence. Mm-hmm. And some of it, it might be a beloved ancestor. And for some of us, it might be God, but there's no right or wrong. And it can be a mixture of, of any of those things. And it mm-hmm. can also be our highest self. And so, you know, what is the practice that you can go to the door and knock every day? And if you've been disconnected from your body, you've probably been disconnected from your guidance system. So can you go to the door and knock or to the well and drop down the bucket every day? And what kind of devotion are you bringing to that? That if you could only say, please help me or help me, please, if that's the only thing you can ask, what might happen? And that's a very simple way to start. And with a practice, you know, I always imagine that this was passed down for generations and then modernism, modernity just disconnected us from it. But I do believe that there were practices that everybody knew, everybody knew, men, women, everybody. <laughs> so Marianne Williamson, who is a American spiritual thought leader, spiritual teacher, mm-hmm. she has four questions that I think are really another concrete way. And for years before I had my true awakening, I would use those questions and I would wake up and I would say, thank you for letting me have this life today. And I want to be of use. Please use me as a vessel. I, I am here to answer the call as long as it's not going to hurt anyone as long as it's for the highest good. And I use her questions, which are, what would you have me say? To whom? Where would you have me go? And what would you have me do? And when you ask a set of consistent questions every day in a spiritual practice, you then know when it's different. And, you know, one of the favorite things that people say is like, did I make that up? Like, well, you don't know unless you try. You don't know Mm. unless you test it out. And consistency is such, that's why many people use meditation, but empty your mind meditation is quite complex, especially when you have a lot of trauma and you don't want to be in the body. It's not the most accessible way of, of mindfulness and spirituality. And so giving people more accessible ways of connecting with something bigger than themselves. And so some people need to do it when they're walking. Some people need to do it when they're quiet in nature. And some people need to do it when they're dancing. And there's no right or wrong way. It's, it's kind of like, as long as I'm showing up and asking and participating in, the, in this life that I wanted, that's the beginning of it. And another one is, you know, please make me your own. And I've told clients that there's been years when I've said things like that probably 15 or 25 times a day when I've been going through something that's bigger than I knew was possible for people. I would just say like, I don't know how to handle this. Make me your own. Show me, speak for me, write for me. Show me how to ask for what I need because I don't know what to do. And most of us don't know that asking for help can be safe or that we're going to be heard. And having really concrete ways that if you knew that it was just because you weren't taught it, we're more likely to then say, I'm willing to try. Willingness is the number one thing. You don't have to do it perfectly, but you know, willingness is the ingredient. When people say, oh my goodness, I'm going on a deep retreat with you. Like, how do I need to prepare? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is be willing. Mm-hmm. Willingness, that's all we look for. 
that's not real. <laughs> that's right. And I actually just want to come back to the meditation thing as well because, and I've actually talked about this once or twice before, but, um, you, you know, it, as a psycho-spiritual psychotherapist, one of the tools that we were taught back in my training was around, um, you know, self-reflection and self-identification meditations. And for many, many years I just used to beat the crap out of myself because I couldn't meditate and it was actually more trauma causing for me than it was useful I used to sit in my very harsh super ego most of the time and it wasn't until I went on a on a retreat with with a somatic psychotherapist actually who said to me um, what what does work for you and I said I like walking the labyrinth And she said, so when we sit, off you go and you walk the labyrinth. And I think it's really important for women to hear that because there are so many spiritual shoulds around um, how we should be meditating and we should be doing this and should be doing that. But not everything works for everyone. No. I mean, I just think that, you know, with being a a wisdom keeper or a spiritual teacher or a psycho-spiritual therapist, there's so much privilege that comes with that and people can easily unconsciously use manipulation, coercion, Mm. shame, blame, judgment, and really, you know, it's really out of alignment and it gets really confusing when you're in the past of like, I really don't want to live like this anymore and I'm going to you for help and then you shame me Mm. or you judge me or you confuse me. Of course, I don't know what to do because if you tell me this is the only way and it's not working for me, then what what else am I supposed to do because I came to you for help? And look, I've got to say, I was in therapy at the time with someone who I'm having been on the retreat and not got the whole meditation thing that um, I felt really, really judged. And I ended up ending the therapy because of it. I just could not move past it. It was so painful. Um, and kind of this feeling of being expected to be somewhere that I wasn't. And you know, I really learned a lot from that retreat and not being able to sit in meditation. So I think it's important to name with the listeners, like whoever you're going to for guidance and support on your path, it's really important that they have not just integrity, but they have humility. And that's what keeps you honest as a teacher. And it's something that I had to do a lot of work around because I didn't know my sense. I was out of alignment with things before. And so I did a lot of work because I was coming from my wounded healer place and not from my integrated true self around really inviting people in a very different way into their, into their bodies and into their practices and, and into their connection with spirit. And, you know, everything that I know about you, Jody, even though we don't know each other personally, is I just really see that you hold the sacredness of your work with such humility. And I really received that from you all these years. And it, sometimes we don't have the words to know, oh, that's what I needed. That's how I would feel seen and respected and met with dignity. And I hope that people really can hear that, that those are some of the feelings. It's not about the words that people use, but it's the feeling you have in your body. Like, wow, I feel gotten. Mm -hmm. I feel seen. You know, I feel like I could trust myself when that person spoke. Like I could choose. I didn't have to believe everything they said. Yeah. And something else you mentioned, which I just loved, you said, now it's, it's interesting because I often have found myself at your website when I've been, you know, obviously researching for this interview as well. And you've got this beautiful photo on the front page and your beautiful hair and the beautiful smile. And, and then you've just said that you're not a very good dancer. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> 
And this is going to lead me into talking about your movement classes. I guess as someone with a disordered eating history and body image issues, I would be quite fearful going to some kind of movement class. You know, I might look at the instructor and think, oh, you know, she's like a great dancer or she's even thin or or whatever it is. So I really loved that you said that you were a bit awkward. and Yeah, I think that the last time I took a dance class before, I found the previous kind of class I was leading. I was five years old and I was going to a ballet class at the YMCA and I peed my pants. <laughs> I never went back. You know, it's like, <gasps> oh, I don't know what the interaction was, but I remember having a peed pink ballet unitard and pink tights that were hot and itchy. And I was like, I'm not for this. I don't like this. <laughs> so I was very like into sports, but that wasn't, we didn't dance in my family growing up. And like, that mm-hmm. wasn't, I saw girls that were in dance, but they were kind of like wearing, you know, costumes and dressed up and I just like, wow, I don't know how to do that. And that's not for me. That's for them. And then you really showed them by wedding yourself. That's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And when I found the previous dance class that I facilitated was called Koya. And Koya was founded by a woman named Rochelle Sheik. And I found it about five years ago. And I was really in such a bad place, like still healing from postpartum, postpartumness, postpartum trauma with my body. Mm. And so I'm I'm 5'4", and, you know, I have, I'm, I'm a curvy woman. I'm not on the tall bean, beanstalk um, end of the spectrum. And when I got pregnant with my daughter, I had hyperemesis gravidum. That's the place, that's the symptom where you can't stop throwing up. And I just had a really hard pregnancy. And mm. I gained probably 70 or 80 pounds. And when I delivered her, everyone said, oh, don't worry, your breastfeed, it'll come off. Oh, don't worry. And I lost 20 pounds when I delivered. And then I couldn't lose the weight for the remaining 50 or 60 pounds until I found Koya. So Koya came at a time in my life when I had been exercising. I had a healthy relationship with food and the weight literally couldn't come off. And now I know that that was part of my trauma response was to hold weight. And it's a developmental pattern that you hold trauma and liquid in the body. So I didn't know that back then. And Koya really was a place for me to energetically and physically release trauma I didn't know I was holding on to. And it started my healing with movement. It started my healing with self-expression. And after I found it, my guidance system said, well, you need to become a Koya teacher. And I said, excuse me, WTF, you want me to become a dance teacher? (laughs) And I said, I'm like, you're punking me. This is not my spiritual guidance team. This is for someone else's. You've crossed into my psyche. This is not real. And they said, this is the way for you to bring all the people in your community together for them to meet each other. Because this was right when Trump got elected. There was a massive crisis in Washington. And Mm. Washington is what I call a very button-up place. And even though people were on the path of seeking, they didn't know who each other were. And so I, I know a lot of change makers and people with a lot of influence that really wanted to do the right thing and use their privilege to do things radically differently and to know other people on the same path. And so I became a Koya teacher to bring those people together. And it was probably one of the bravest things I've ever done because, you know, I'm not a dancer and I was leading a dance class and, um, I brought all these very different women together and, you know, was doing a lot of fun, but it was really radical. And I think if we were someplace else, like on the West coast of America, it would have been like, Oh, we do that here. But in Washington, it was very, (laughs) um, very out there. Um, 
And so over the years, that community has grown and so many friendships have been developed. And even if you come one time or if you come every class, it was really incredible and unbelievable at what my bravery, I could get past my hangups and my stories around me as a dancer or non-dancer and me as a psychotherapist facilitating this. Then if I could show people and model to people that this is what this is what it's like to be brave and follow your heart and to do something that's much bigger than yourself. I knew that it could have a bigger impact. So from that, so many different relationships, alliances, like mm. ideas were built from that. And I was sharing with Jody when we were preparing for this that mm. I certainly completed as a Koya teacher because of my sense of using the term Koya as a white woman on my website. I could imagine if you don't know me, the question would be like, why is she using an indigenous word? And also as a person of color or an indigenous person seeing that word on my website, it's like, well, why is she using that? And what I can say about Rochelle is that she really is in right relationship with it, with her experience of it. She is in connection with the Quero, the shamans of the Andes, and she explains how she's learned about it. But for me, I just couldn't use that word anymore. So probably by the time people hear this, I will be offering movement classes, but they won't be Koya anymore. And we use movement, we use journaling, we do uh, some sharing. And I did my first virtual class um, in September. So it was a brand new experience. But then all these people who moved away from Washington could then participate. And they just, it was just amazing for people to like, I miss this so much. I don't have this where I live. Mm. And I want this connection and this fun. And I know that you are offering on your website, obviously online at the moment, which I actually thought, oh, I'm going to look at the time of the next one to see when it is, to see if it's hopefully not the middle of the night here. But um, <laughs> what can women expect? And we're talking about people with, you know, if I'm remembering back to my early recovery journey from trauma and disordered eating and body shame, just feeling so much self-loathing, it's pretty scary to turn up to something like this, I think if, if you're terrified of being in your body, I guess, terrified of being seen in your body, what happens and can you help women understand and, and is it for women of every, I mean, I know it is, but let's just reiterate for people of different sizes and yeah, can you just say a little bit more around all that? Yeah, yeah. I have been working with a teacher who's in Canada and she always has a really big Australian community. So I've looked at her time. So I'm like, maybe I should try and do some of those times that would help bridge the gap. So that is my intention for the winter solstice class. I will definitely do that for that. Uh-huh. class. But I always say when we were meeting a person, I would always say, please raise your hand if you're new to Koya. And there's always more than one person. Then I would have everyone raise their hand. Like, do you remember what coming to your first class was like? And everybody raised their hand. And everybody is such an affirming community and it's really body positive and it's really not about your skill set. Mm-hmm. So it's like really show up just as you are and just experiment and you're only limited by your imagination. And the beauty of doing it on Zoom is that the class that I had in September, there were about 40 people. And when you on Zoom, page two, you can't even see people on page two. And you know, some people, I actually find the people that have the hardest time with it, the most that need the most bravery to come are the people who are dancers. Because mm-hmm. in dancing, there's so much body shame. There's only one right way. And it's always a choreographed dance. Yeah. Coming to something like this class where there's no choreography, it's like, this is what it's like to choreograph your own life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about people, you know, obviously I've worked with a lot of dancers, ballet and stuff over the years, yes. but, um, very rigid and just so much shame and super ego and really very punitive. So this must yeah. be really eye opening. 
It's amazing. And there's so many different kinds of people with, with so many different lived experiences and also that look like there's just a diversity of people that come from age to weight to ethnicity to religious belief. We have a really diverse group of people. And so then when people speak, you get to put a, a face to something that you had around the story. So, oh, this person's a real person. You know, I thought her dancing was like this, but most mm-hmm. of the time you're just, especially on Zoom, like you're in your own wherever, like your living room or your family mm-hmm. room or outside. And you're not really focused. I think it's the best way to do a dance class because a movement class, because you're not in the big room. That is really brave because you physically see everybody at one time. But this is one of the gifts of Zoom movement is that you don't have to see everybody. I also suggested in that online class, like you can just pin me as a speaker and you can also hide yourself on Zoom, which is a huge gift to people with trauma. Yeah. Some people need you to see themselves, but you can also hide yourself. And so there's just so much freedom to experiment with what that's like, which is really, really healing and a great practice for people that have a lot of story and a lot of shame and a lot of pain around being in the body and having fun in the body. Oh, so wonderful. You know, I'm thinking too, most of my 90s was in the London rave scene, getting up to <laughs> lots of trouble for very hedonistic lifestyle. But often I recommend, you know, I was in London, I did Gabrielle Roth Five Rhythms, and that's quite sort of similar in terms of it being sort of free dance. But um, there are lots of different movement styles and, and classes out there to what I often hear from people who are part of that sort of rave scene and where they've also been having addiction issues because of that and obviously a trauma history. One of the things for me was there'll be nothing quite like that again in my life. And it wasn't until I discovered movement classes that I thought, ah, okay, it's a bit more grown up. (laughs) I'm not sort of in my 20s and going out being that naughty anymore, but it's a way of connecting with that, like a natural high as well, I think, you know, and for anyone scared to leave that scene, there is something else out there. And and that's often what I recommend to clients who have had these issues and been part of that scene and feeling like, you know, I can't go clubbing anymore because I don't want to go and take drugs anymore and all that kind of stuff. But this is, I think, a really good alternative to that if you're trying to recover from those issues. So there's that aspect as well for me. Oh, yeah. And people will always kind of make fun of me or make fun of the experience. Like, if you would have told me I was going to be dancing on a Sunday morning sober, <laughs> yeah. like, are you kidding me? Who do you think I was? And so we all yeah. kind of laugh about it, but this is very radical and it's so much fun and you can't do it wrong. And you can learn so much in such a short period of time that you can't get to through journaling or making art or through thinking. Like it's just, mm. we call it movement is medicine. Like this is the medicine. Like my body wow. always, to, like my heart always knows where to lead me. My pinky is like, no, go this way in this dance. And my hair sometimes will take me up to a place. And Mm -hmm. if I let my eyelashes lead, like just really experimenting and from a felt sense place versus a thinking place, like that's rather than thinking about it as dance, it's like, oh, it's movement. Yeah. And some people like to call it dance, but it's really just movement. And if I'm stuck in my life and I don't know how to get past something, let me practice it with movement. Wow. That's amazing. So obviously COVID has been great for some of these things because there's a lot more offered online now than there was before COVID. So I'll make sure once again that we link to your classes in the show notes. But I know you're on Spotify as well, and I think you might have some playlists there. Is that correct? I have tons of playlists, and they always have a theme. So the theme for all the the previous Koya classes, you know, could be anything from compassion to anti-racism to 
knowing how to lead with your heart versus your mind. Or I used to do a, a series on the chakra. So I had a third eye class, you know, there's a little bit of something for everybody or, you know, divine union or mercury retrograde. I've, I've done it all. I take a lot of time to really sit with and let the music be my co-facilitator. Mm-hmm. And so the lyrics, the kind of music I use, I have a very diverse music taste and the quality of sound and the tone of the voice or no voice or instrumental, like I'm really intentional about bringing the vibrations and the artistry and the healing of the artist into my playlist. Mm, Yeah. So how do people find you, Amy? Can you tell us your website and? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a super active person on social media anymore, but you can find a lot about me on Instagram and I'm at amy.babish on Instagram. And then my website is amybabish.com. And I have another website that's going to be kind of integrated, which is yoursoultherapy.com. But Amy Babish is probably the best way to find me. So I'll make sure I do that. And so just a reminder that if you are listening and you review this episode on iTunes, that if you send a screenshot to Amy, she will send you a 10-minute Uh, golden meditation for resourcing just in line with actually I think you're doing donations through your dance classes aren't you I can share Xanthia's website so it's Xanthia Johnson and her website is called urban playology she's a playtherapist.com urbanplayology.com and then she also has another website called manifesting dopeness which I love and (laughs) probably when you launch the podcast for for this episode she and her co-facilitator Christian Owens her website is resilientchildtherapy.com, but they'll have their own compassionate anti-racism website. So if you're wanting to do your own anti-racism work, they're amazing. And they do it for book clubs, for religious groups, for individual therapy, for training, leadership. They do it all. So they're amazing. Amy, thank you so much for coming. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and I'm sure women listening are just going to get on your website and want to come to one of your movement classes because I know I am. You know, thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a wisdom keeper. And I feel like we've known each other for a lifetime. So I'm grateful to know you in this way in this lifetime. And I hope that anybody listening really takes the time to share this with people who need it who don't know what this is, but just really being open to sharing the gift of Jody and her podcast with whoever it might be a coworker, an old friend, a new friend, a longtime friend, a sister, a partner. I just feel like a lot of people, their souls will be fed by listening to your podcast. That's my wish. Thank you. This is episode 25. For the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 25. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Loved this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65 page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.